Welcome everybody to Connecting the Universe. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker back with you for another interactive class live on Monday night this week instead of our usual Wednesday night because we're going to be flying out to Ireland on Wednesday. So it's going to be an absolutely amazing trip. Some of our uh, Connecting the Universe or our some of our keepers of the Connected Universe portal, I should say, will be joining us for that. And Celine and Jennifer LeBay will be along with us for that. And something we're going to be doing on the Connected Universe Portal website is we will have a uh, travel blog from Ireland so that you can keep up with everything that's going on. I did that with Egypt last year. Going to be doing that with Ireland this year. So please be sure to check that out, connecteduniverseportal.com. And those that are listening to the audio podcast version of this later on, uh, please join us usually every Wednesday night, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern time, connecteduniverseportal.com. Uh, you get access to the not only the weekly interactive class, but all the other material out there as well, monthly Q&As. We have the uh, plethora of articles that are out there, the travel blogs, Egypt, Ireland, American Southwest, and all kinds of other material out there as well, behind the scenes, sneak peek videos, uh, a morning mug vlog that I will do, all kinds of stuff out there that you will want to check out. So, all right, let's go ahead and uh, get into this. So I did not have a chance to check to see if anybody actually answered the, uh, the class question for today, which was what is your favorite urban legend or ghost story. Let me go down through. Okay. Uh, Katie McVeigh did answer. Given my Irish heritage, I've always been fascinated by banshees and their premonitory power as harbingers of death. Uh, you know what, Katie? When we head out there to Ireland this week, into this week, all of next week, and a little bit into the following week, that is something we're going to be checking out. So very interested in, uh, in banshee lore, very interested in fairy lore. We're going to be visiting a lot of different castles. We're going to be hitting some of the stone circles. So banshees are definitely going to be uh, a thing here. So Tom McNicholas, you did make it out for a bit. All right, buddy. Good to see you down there. Lori Hildebrandt, Sarah Yusuf are also in the house. Awesome. There is uh, Katie there as well. So great to see so many people uh, joining us this evening. So what we are talking about this evening Go ahead and start the little slideshow here. This is based on my uh, presentation that I give. I actually just gave this at uh, the History of the Paranormal exhibit, mobile exhibit from Brian Cano uh, this past weekend. History of the Paranormal, a working relationship. And I did see Katie out there, uh, which was fantastic. Finally uh, got to meet Katie. So... And if you ever get a chance, please go ahead and check out the, the mobile exhibit. I was going to try to clip a little video or include a little video clip of it here for this. Ended up with zero time. Obviously, we started a couple minutes late here this evening. But if you ever get a chance to go visit Brian's exhibit, please go check it out. Uh, it is really fascinating how much material he has brought in to cover the, the history of the paranormal field. Starting really Well, it even goes further back than that, but spiritualism movement all the way up through modern times. And he gives you a look at a lot of different aspects of the field as it has kind of morphed and matured over the years and how you know, different belief systems, different technologies uh, have all had their influence into the field. So check that out. Uh, and you can uh, find that from him, neverstopsearching.com slash tour. It's either slash tour or slash tours. But go to neverstopsearching.com. You'll find it. That's Brian's site. Okay, so history in the paranormal, a working relationship. I did give this presentation first time in three years the other night. Um, I think the only person in here that might recognize it is Tom. <laughs> I don't know if, if anybody else in, down there has seen it, but it's been a while anyway. And it's to me a, a kind of a fun, um, it, it's a fun presentation to give. Most people have been interested in my uh, shadow people presentation of late, and I completely understand why. But all right, when we talk about history, legends, the paranormal, really what we're doing is we're storytelling. And over the millennia, this is this is where our tales started from. Uh, people gathering around a fire and relating their history, the things that happened to their civilization, their tribe, 
uh, you know, things were passed down via the the oral, the oral traditions, uh, you know, speaking the word. You know, sure, we figured out how to write uh, later on, whether it was into clay tablets, hieroglyphs on the walls in ancient Egypt, and we ended up passing down stories that way. We finally figured out how to use papyrus and things like that. But originally, it was all oral tradition. Even when you look at like the uh, the ancient Greeks, when you look at like uh, you know the Odyssey and things like that, originally for the first couple hundred years, it was just an oral tradition. It eventually got written down. It makes you wonder how much was changed over time. So I really enjoy this quote. Whatever you think about the end of Game of Thrones, not going to debate that. But this quote here from. Tyrion Lannister, played by Peter Dinklage. There's nothing in the world more powerful than a good story. And I find that to be very, very true. People are fascinated by stories. When you just look at your, uh, you know, our pop culture today, uh, you know, people are very fascinated with movies. Uh, we binge watch television shows. And why does that happen? Because we become engrossed in the story. We relate to the characters. Uh, there is an interesting situation that these characters are thrust into, and we get hooked on watching the story play out. So when we think about history, though, we don't necessarily think of a good story. And it's an unfortunate thing, but I think that's because many of our history teachers, middle school, high school, they made us memorize names, dates, wars, got to look at a map, and again, memorize names and dates and things like that. Uh, for many people, it was very, very dry. Uh, my my ex-wife used to say things like, I can't stand that history junk. And well, that's probably one of the reasons why she's my ex-wife these days. Probably a lot more reasons than that. But <laughs> that was one, thing, one of those things where we butted heads a little bit because I loved history. But I was very, very fortunate in that I had a couple of history teachers that were very good storytellers. So it wasn't just about memorize, you know, these people, memorize these wars, uh, memorize these dates. You know, it wasn't all just about dead people. It was about the story that, okay, these people have passed away. They're no longer with us, but the story that they played out. So, for example, uh, my world history teacher, my freshman year of high school, a lot of the countries that we were talking about in our world history, he had been to. He had been to these cities. He had seen these battlefields and these monuments and things like that to, you know, the events that had happened. And so he would tell us the stories of what happened while he was there, even some, you know, off the cuff stuff. Like, you know, one time he was in Amsterdam with, with his family and they turned down the wrong street and, you know, the, the kids are walking by the uh, you know, the shops that have all the, the women in the windows and things like that. And so he's like, you know, trying to cover their eyes. You, mem you remember the story. <laughs> um, we actually in that class, because he would just so much so just start kicking back and telling stories. We called those McDonald's days because we were no longer looking at the book. We were just listening to him tell the stories, but it was very, very visual. And we were ultimately able to relate that story to the material in the book. And therefore, we were able to do much, much better on the test because then we could remember it. And so that's how the uh, people of old were able to pass down their history, you know, whether it was about aspects of their culture, whether it was um, you know, advice on how to uh, cultivate the field. Maybe there was a uh, you know, a certain plant or something that you didn't want to touch that was very poisonous. And so they had a story that went with that warning of don't touch this plant or don't go to, you know, this part of the river because you'll get sucked in. And maybe there was some sort of, you know, in the story part of it, maybe there's some sort of monster uh, within there that would pull you in. So it would help people to remember. So where this uh, presentation goes is we're going to look at a number of different uh, urban legends, ghost stories, these sorts of things. And we're going to try to extract from them the real grains of truth. How did these stories come to be? Uh, especially when sometimes you can only find one little bit of 
truth out of it. And you want to know more, you know, what really happened. And when we talk about this relating to the paranormal as a paranormal investigator, like I've been for a long time, many that are watching right now are paranormal investigators. We walk into a historic location, a haunted building, and we hear those different stories. But it's probably not what really happened. It's probably been embellished over time. You know, the whole idea of, you know, the operator game, you know, teacher tells the kid on this side of the room, uh, a statement or a little story. It has to make it all the way around. And what does it end up at the end? Changes a lot over that course of time. You might have a little grain of sand here or there. That's the original truth. On an investigation, you're trying to interact with these different spirits. You want to know the truth of their stories so that you can better talk to them, better relate to them. If you've got the embellished part, they're going to be like, I never did that. I'm not talking to you. We'll get into that stuff as we go along. All right. Let me get off my soapbox here. Let me actually uh, get into some specifics. We're going to start with Mount Airy, Plan, uh, Mount Airy Mansion, Rosaryville Park. Uh, this is in Maryland. It's actually a very, very old building. Uh, started off as a hunting lodge, which is the uh, brown building off to the right-hand side of the photograph there. The white building is the newer part of the structure, uh, which was built in the uh, in the 1700s, but uh, it's very historic. So uh, our very first president, uh, George Washington, visited here. His stepson actually married into the family. And so it's rumored that some of the box was here uh, at the at the mansion are actually gifts from George Washington uh, to the family when that marriage happened. And these guys, let me let me tell you real quick, uh, they knew how to party. It wasn't we're just showing up for a wedding, we're having the ceremony, and we have a reception afterwards, and then you know the bride and groom go off to their honeymoon. No, th it was a week long wedding party. You know they were there a full week partying on uh, because because the couple got married. They knew how to do it. So when I was researching this book for my book, Ghosts of Maryland, a lot of interesting stories that came out of this building, uh, you know, full grandeur, you know, we've got a whole complete story uh, to be able to tell. But I came across, you know, this is 2006. And I mean, I'm just initially do a little Google search. What in the world can can I find? What's anybody saying about it? They'll give me some tidbits to start to follow up on. Of course, I went to the mansion and everything as well, but came across this little one-liner. A distraught young woman, heartbroken in mourning about the house, still desiring a forbidden love she was disallowed to have in life. So this is a young, the spirit of a young woman that's supposed to be haunting the house. And I kept looking around and looking around and looking around and that was all I could find for the longest time. And I'm fleshing out the chapter with all these other stories. Um, you know, you know, great one of the, uh, you know, the old woman who, it's sad, sorry. Um, she fell down the stairs with her, uh, with her oil lamp. At the bottom of the stairs, the oil lamp basically exploded on her. And, well, they say the fall killed her, but, you know, you know it's kind of messy too. In any case, one of the things that she always uh, required was for the parlor doors to remain locked. Well, and that was her rule of the house, lock the parlor doors. Well, when they had the, uh, uh, the wake, they had put her, her coffin with her in it in, that, in the parlor, and they had left the parlor doors open. Family comes back the next day after everything had been set up. They're going to have the, the actual ceremony, the actual wake. They come in. The parlor doors are shut and locked. And they could not find the key. They ended up having to break open the door. And sure enough, they found the key there by the coffin. So nice, fully fleshed out story. Things like that I'm working with. Yet with this one liner, distraught young woman, heartbroken in mourning about the house, still desiring a forbidden love she was disallowed to have in life. I could not find anything on this young woman until go to the library. Is uh, a takeaway from this: use your library. Found this book 
colonial mansions of Maryland and Delaware. It had more than just um, this particular mansion that I was looking for. It dates all the way back to 1914, John Martin Hammond. It's over 100 years old now. Uh, when I first uh, referenced it, it was a less than 100 years. But in any case, found this book. Okay, great. It has some of the uh, mansions I'm, I'm concerned with in it. And as I started reading through the story about Mount Airy Mansion, I found this. This is straight from the book. The tragedy of Ariana Calvert's life is one of the most pathetic stories connected with the historic old mansion. She loved a young man who had been received at her father's house, but was not looked upon with favor as the daughter's prospective husband. Wouldn't you know it? I found the story. That is uh, a forbidden love she was disallowed to have in life. A pathetic story. And as you read on, what you discover about this poor girl, yes, her father, Benedict, let's, let's go see a good old Benedict. There he is. Uh, he did not like this young man that she had fallen in love with, and he forbade her from seeing him. Well, being a young woman in love, what did she go do? She would, of course, you know, sneak out and go see him anyway. So what Benedict decided to do, now, um, Rosaryville Park, which is in Upper Marlboro, is quite a few miles away from Annapolis, Maryland. Um, off the top of my head, it's probably like around 50 miles or something like that. Um, it's a little bit of a drive. And so he sent her to Annapolis to go live with her sisters. Now, of course, back at that time, that's a significant distance. We could drive that in you know, an hour now, but back then, that's, that's a significant distance. He sent her to go live with her sisters in Annapolis. And she grew extremely, extremely depressed. So much so to the point that she was starting to get ill. Her sisters were trying to find other suitors for her. They would bring in other young men and Ariana would just turn them away, turn them away, turn them away, all the while getting more and more ill. She's getting sicker and sicker. And she ended up basically being bedridden. Uh, she was, she was not getting out of bed. She was not eating. She was, she was dying. Over the course of that time, her father, Benedict, actually did die. And the mother, Elizabeth, off on the right there, took pity about, uh, took pity upon Ariana and said, come back home. So Ariana went home but her health did not regain. She was too far gone at that point and she died in the house. And now she haunts there uh, as, a, as a spectral ghost mourning about the house, distraught over this lost love of her life that she was never, that she was never able to follow up on, that she was forbidden by her father. It's a very, very sad tale. Uh, but I use this as an example of uh, when you're when you're doing historic research on a particular home and you just come across something little like that, keep digging. Keep digging, and at some point you may actually find the real tale of what happened. So I was very, very happy that I was able to uh, give a voice to this young woman. Instead of just being a little one-liner tossed off to the side, um, you know, she now has a voice in the present. You know, so many of these people get lost to time and now she no longer needs to be lost. Now she's remembered. So, all right, let's move on then to Skirvin Hotel, Oklahoma City. This one, this one's kind of fun. I enjoyed researching this one out. So the resident ghost, now there's, there's many spirits uh, that are at the Skirvin Hotel. Uh, you have bellhops and businessmen and all kinds of, you know, spirits roaming about. Uh, but the big one is Effie the Chambermaid. Effie is, um, she has a very, very sad tale about her. With Effie, she was supposed to have been the, uh, the lover of W.B. Skirvin, the original proprietor of the hotel. And they had a, a love child together. Now, she being a chambermaid, W.B. Skirvin being a you know, very influential businessman, he didn't want this to be known. So he hit her in the uh, 
top floor of the hotel, the suite that he had up there. And just would not, she, he wouldn't let her down. She was basically a prisoner up there in that room with the baby. Well, at some point, she grew uh, very, very depressed. She was not allowed out. She, you know, cabin fever, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and she ended up jumping out of the window with baby in hand uh, to, to both of their deaths, jumping out of the top floor window of the, of the hotel. So there's a couple of issues with that that we'll get to in a moment. But before we get to those issues, with this legend in tow, Yeah, ghosts are to blame for the Knicks' loss. So, uh, teams coming to play the Oklahoma City Thunder basketball teams would stay at the Skirvin Hotel and get scared out of their rooms by Effie the chambermaid. And because they spent all night being scared of the ghost, they lost the game and blamed it on the loss on the, on the spirits of the hotel or on Effie which is kind of humorous. And the Knicks aren't the only one that did that. The, uh, the Chicago Bulls also did the same thing, blame their loss on the ghost. So it's kind of humorous. Um, you know, problem with the story is that there was no Effie. That's an issue. Did she really exist? Well, you look into any historical records and there was never an Effie that worked at the hotel. There, you, you could not find any birth certificate, certificate, death certificate, um, registers now, of course, sure, Skirvin could strike her from a register, but there weren't any news reports either of a woman and a baby jumping out of the Skirvin Hotel. Nothing. That would make the news. That would absolutely make the news. And it didn't. There's no record of her whatsoever. So who was she? And that was my quest when I started researching my book, Ghosts and Legends of Oklahoma, and I was covering the Skirvin Hotel. I wanted to find out who she was, if she was anybody at all. And it took some examination of the building itself. So here's an old postcard of the Skirvin Hotel from 1920. And if you count the number of floors here, it has 10 floors which is absolutely accurate. It did have 10 floors until the early 1930s when they added a couple of floors, which I go back to the more recent photo and you can see the top there. Um, that's not just, uh, you know, that's just not artwork. That's just not making it look fancy at the top. They literally added two more floors, which is why it looks a little bit different up there. So we need to know that going into the story, <clears throat> excuse me, because in 1932, October, there was a man from Dallas, he was a salesman, who jumped out of the 10th story window of the Skirvin Hotel to his death. So, okay, it's not a woman, but it is from the 10th story, which until two years prior had been the top story of the window. Now, you have to think about the way news travels back then. Very slow. Um, we didn't have internet. We didn't have, you know, television news or anything like that. So let's say somebody in telling of the story, hey, did you hear about that guy that jumped out of the 10th story of the Skirvin Hotel? Another person's like, oh, wow, really? Okay. But in their mind, because it had been this way for 15 years, to him, top story of the Skirvin Hotel is a 10th floor. This guy just said 10th floor. I should have said that reverse way. This guy said 10th floor. To him, when he hears 10th floor, he thinks it's a top story because it had been the top story for the past 15 years and didn't know that another two stories had been added. So you can see how that could very, very easily be twisted from 10th story to top floor since it had been that way. You just need to know the history of the building. Okay, that explains the 10th floor, top floor issue. 
We're talking about a woman with a baby. So where's the woman come into play? All right, well, a few years later, 1939, there was a woman who did attempt to jump out of the hotel. Uh, it was not the uh, it was not the tenth floor or the top floor at that time, which would have been the twelfth. It was the eighth story, uh, but it was a woman nonetheless that did try to jump out. A uh, security officer did pull her back in the window, and she was fined eleven dollars for drunkenness. So this still takes us to, so that explains, okay, we, now we have a woman involved in the story. So what about the baby? Well, that's where our hauntings and strange phenomena come into play. So with the Skirvin Hotel, again, there are several of these hauntings that go on, and one is of a chambermaid. Um, but there are other things that go on as well. So with the chambermaid, people have seen her uh, appear in the room. People have heard a maid's cart go down the hall. One gentleman even claimed that the uh, that the chambermaid appeared in his shower with him. And maybe give that one, you know, maybe take that one with a grain of salt. As far as the baby cries, uh, there have been the uh, the disembodied voices of a crying baby upon the air down some of the hallways of the Skirvin. So that's where the baby comes into play. You hear a maid cart and a baby cry. Okay, you start making the connection and people are seeing the chambermaid. So you start making the connection, chambermaid, maid's cart, cry of a baby. Okay, these are the hauntings. Well, we know, uh, you know, somebody jumped out of the top story window, which was 10th, uh, even though it was a man, but there was a woman who tried. You know, so you have all of these pieces that start to make this amalgamation of a story. Where the name Effie came from, I have no idea but you can see where these different elements of the hotel all kind of mesh together to create this urban legend of Effie the chambermaid and her baby. They didn't exist, but there are different pieces of that story that were actually true. All right, I have a couple of comments down here. Um, so uh, Connie's saying that's like uh, the Feister Hotel. Thomas saying it looks like the Palmer House in Chicago is probably modeled after a lot of the same hotels you know, uh, from the early 20th century. And Tom saying maybe the same contract could possibly be, or at least they're um, uh, inspired by each other. Sarah says she hears disembodied voices of baby cries on long flights. Um, I've, I've heard literal physical babies crying right behind my seat on long flights. That's no fun. <laughs> All right. So moving on to another urban legend. All right. Gore Orphanage. This is another fun but sad one. So the legend goes, and this has been featured on some different television shows, incorrectly. And I mean like fictional television shows. I don't know if anybody's actually taken this to... Um, like one of the mainstream paranormal shows. I've, I know they covered it on Supernatural, very, again, very incorrectly. Um, but I don't know if uh, some of the paranormal shows, if they have. But in any case, so the legend goes that uh, old man Gore ran an orphanage. He was mean and abusive, beat the children, locked them in their rooms at night. One night, the orphanage caught on fire and he ran out to save his own life while all the children perished. That's the story of Gore Orphanage. And you can see these ruins. There you go. There's a photo of ruins of a building right there. Problem is, there never was a Gore Orphanage. Absolutely never was. Um, the, the way that it came up, there is a building there, which was known as the Swift Mansion. It's a Greek revival structure. Uh, it's a beautiful house. These... Uh, Library in Vermilion, Ohio is based off of this house. The, the exterior is based off of this house. Um, absolutely beautiful building. But it was never used as an orphanage. Up the hill, there was an orphanage. Later on, we'll get into that in just a moment because we're going we're gonna to track down the history. But the way that the name came into play, because the reason why people think that there was a Gore Orphanage is there's a road called Gore Orphanage Road. Well, okay, if there's a road named Gore Orphanage Road, there must have been a Gore Orphanage in Old Man Gore, right? Yeah. 
So originally it was just Gore Road. Before, long before the, the Swift Mansion, long before um, the orphanage, it was Light of Hope Orphanage that came into play. Long before that, it was just Gore Road. Why? Well, long ago, when they surveyed the land, they made a mistake. And in order to make the correction on the map, they had to map out this triangular-shaped wedge of land, which is known as a gore. So they named the road that went along that place, Gore Road. Years later, the Light of Hope Orphanage ended up along that particular road. So what they did was they kept the Gore part of the, the road so that people who were familiar with Gore Road knew, hey, there's Gore Road, let's, let's go down there. But people looking for the orphanage, they appended the name on there so they would know, oh, this is the road to the orphanage. So it became Gore Orphanage Road, even though there was never an actual Gore Orphanage. It's getting a little ahead of ourselves here. So let's take a look at this, this mansion, Swift Mansion. Why is it called the Swift Mansion? Well, the name of the family was called the Swifts. They are the ones who built it. Uh, he was invested heavily in the railroad industry, which after living there for about 20 years, went belly up and lost his money and they had to sell. And they sold to the Wilbur family who again was there for about another 20 years, 1897. Now we mentioned children and there is a tragedy with children at this particular house um, that I should say is associated with this house. The children actually did not live here, uh, but they were grandchildren of the Wilbers. And very, very tragically, one January, all four of them perished within this within a span of seven days of diphtheria. Uh, very, very sad indeed. Now, the Wilbers were spiritualists, and they did conduct seances within the house to try to reach out to children. Uh, the grandmother, again, it was the grandparents that lived at this particular house, but the, and the children visited uh, quite often, of course. Uh, the grandmother was so... Um, distraught over the whole thing. She kind of lost it a little bit and would do things like set out place settings at the dining room table for them and, and things like that. Um, and again, they're trying to contact the, the children uh, through seances within the house. So, and one of the things people say is when they go to the ruins, uh, you're kind of looking from the front steps down into the basement area in this particular photo um, that you can actually feel that energy there. So yeah, to kind of give you an idea, there's the front steps there uh, that the people are actually sitting on here. I don't know if you can really tell. When you're there, you can make it out a little bit better. Uh, but you can see on the right-hand side of the photo, there's a step. And it's now stepping down into the hole where before it was stepping up into the house. That's how much it's kind of sunken in. So the... Wilbers in 1897 eventually moved out of the house and it became abandoned for the rest of its days. Uh, like I said, it was never, it was never an orphanage and it sat there and it sat there and sat there. So these, in these particular photos, you can see, uh, you know, some of the windows are busted out. You can see the vegetation growing up uh, on the backside of the house and you can, uh, when you go there, you can you can map out the foundation. Uh, many pieces of it are are still there. Uh, of course, the the walls and things like that are not. Uh, and the old well is there. It's actually when I take people out there, we do kind of a, like a little treasure hunt for some different aspects of uh, of the property, which is kind of fun and interesting. But again, the house was abandoned. Now, six years later, 1903, this is where the orphanage comes into play. Up the hill from the Swift Mansion, the Light of Hope Orphanage came into play. The Sprunger family came out from Indiana to establish this orphanage. And the, uh, the part of the story that is, uh, is actually true is that they were very, very mean and abusive. So the Sprungers were, um, yes, they would, they would beat the children. 
the children were malnourished. They basically were fed, were fed um, garbage food. You know, there's just reports of, you know, we didn't receive butter for a month or, you know, they, uh, you know, 15 kids had to use the same bath water. Um, kids were running away because they wanted to learn something. They actually were not being taught any schooling. Uh, it was a very, very uh, abusive situation. 1909, the Sprungers were bought, brought to trial for their atrocities. Uh, a couple of kids had gotten out, reported them, um, and the locals uh, took them to court to sue them. And so they were actually, uh, they were convicted of, of their abuses. But for some reason, I, it's not quite clear, even though that trial happened in 1909, it wasn't until 1916 until uh, they actually closed their doors. So, and you can see um, you know, so the, the dormitory here, uh, a number of the children, but uh, you know, very, very sad indeed that these things happened to these children. So they closed the doors in 1916. All the while, the house down at the bottom that people call the Gorford Orphanage, the Swift Mansion, is still there, rotting away. Now, the orphanage did buy the land down there. And they bought it for the field that was behind there. So they had all these fields at the top of the hill that they were using, but they also bought this property down at the bottom of the hill uh, because there was a nice large field back there. And the kids would uh, push the carts up and down the uh, uh, the hill. Uh, one of the kids got in trouble for stealing money out. And fine, he stole money out of the cookie jar, uh, but he he went and bought himself a bike so that he could better take things up and down the hill. No, they were they were made to push carts up and down the hill. Now I expect with the old mansion down there that the kids probably ran around and played in it. I mean, you're a kid. You see an old abandoned building there. What are you going to do? You're going to run around and play inside. So, fine. The orphanage closed its doors, 1916. And again, the Swift Mansion just sat there. Nobody lived in it. It was abandoned. Well, one one aspect that is true is in 1923, it, it did burn down. The building actually did burn down. Uh, haunted house destroyed by fire is is the headline. Now, there is some controversy as to what set the fire and why it burned down. Uh, there were some that were actually looking at renovating the old uh, Swift mansion. And then all of a sudden, poof, it goes up in flames. So the idea of renovating it is uh, goes out the window. So was it some sort of arson fire there or was it kids playing around? Because this was this was back in the day, a, a teen hangout, uh, which is kind of still happens today. So it did get destroyed by fire, which is true. There was an orphanage in the area that had abusive uh, caretakers as well. So that part's true. Where did this idea of all of these children burning come from? Was it just from the orphanage up the road? I mean, there wasn't any stories of burning children with all the atrocities. There wasn't that. And they weren't, you know, burning children trapped either. So where did that come from? Well, about the same time that the Sprungers were having uh, their trial when they were in court for their abuses, this tragedy occurred uh, not too far away in uh, in Collinwood. And I remember back in the day, we didn't have fire regulations and building codes. Uh, there was one exit to this building. And um, this, this is a school. 172 children died in this fire. They were all trying to run to the front door and they couldn't make it. You know, it's described that, you know, the, the bodies were stacked like cordwood by the door trying to get out. Extremely, extremely sad. But um, it's possible that since this happened around the same time as the news of the orphanage, Light of Hope Orphanage, uh, was going about, that some of the details of this were transmuted onto the, the orphanage tale. And of course, you have a creepy abandoned house down at the bottom of the hill that eventually burned down too. And again, you see this amalgamation of different stories coming together to create this urban legend, but there are details of truth within it. And it's a matter of picking apart the story 
doing some research, getting into the history of the location and of the area to find out what really happened. All right. So if Tom is still down there, are you still down there, Tom? Let me go and check our chat. And so um, Tom he says he saw Gore Orphanage Road over the weekend during the drive back from New York. Yeah, as you're going under the bridge, the sign right there says Gore Orphanage Road. Um, and that road, that piece of road there actually goes to where the actual orphanage was. It's cut off now from the, uh, from the Swift Mansion. People try to say that they closed down the road because of uh, the, the kids at the bottom of the hill playing around at the old mansion ruins were jumping out and, you know, creating havoc for cars, which is totally false. Uh, the road is closed off because half of it is falling into the Vermilion River. In 1969, there was a huge storm that blew through on the 4th of July. It was uh, such a massive storm. It had like uh, hurricane type winds. Now, you don't get hurricanes in Ohio because of where we're located. Uh, you might get some fallout from you know one of those ones that hit on the East Coast. But uh, there was enough force coming across the lake, that Lake Erie, uh, that it created a hurricane-like effect. And people at the park that were there for the 4th of July, picnics and fireworks were getting like lifted up off their feet. It was ridiculous. Uh, during that storm, that part of Gore Orphanage Road eroded away. Half of it's gone. You can walk up there. I have several times I, I, when I take people out there, it's kind of a little tour I give them. We walk up that part of the road and you're kind of you're walking along a cliff. It's very cool to see, um, it's, but it's part, of the, it's part of the little tour. So, all right. Um, so, Tom, we're gonna. You're leaving. Tom's. Tom's leaving now. We're about to talk about Helltown. So, Tom, I wish you could stick around for this because you've been there with me, in fact. So, okay, Helltown area is also uh, here in Ohio. Now, uh, what's interesting about this is. Uh, Again, you have all these sad tales, right? This is sad tale day. Um, what happened with Helltown? Now, in the 1970s, our government decided that we didn't have enough national parks, that we needed uh, more parkland and to preserve the area. We were becoming too industrialized, too commercialized, and we needed to preserve our nature. Totally agree with that. I'm on board. Sign me up. The problem is, is that instead of setting aside land to do this, they decided to actually, by eminent domain, take this land from people, kick them out of their homes, knock down their houses, and turn it into parkland. Yep, our government did that. And so this area of Ohio that has been dubbed Helltown, it's a Boston Mills area, uh, Peninsula is there. So a couple of those little towns, uh, Jate. Uh, these people lost their homes, lost their businesses, were booted out. There's a handful of buildings that are still there. Um, but for example, and, and this went on for a while, they did try to fight it in Congress and lost. Uh, some of them were kind of grandfathered and most people were just out right away. Um, this person here, was allowed, it was, a, it was an elderly woman. She was allowed to stay. Uh, when I came by there in 2016, the house was there, that was September, 2016. By that February, completely gone. And that was one of the very last houses that was still there. So while this was going on, and people were boot, being booted out of their homes, you ended up with what really looked like a demilitarized zone. You had all these abandoned houses and buildings People just leaving all kinds of things behind. The uh, local fire departments were allowed to come in and train on the abandoned houses. So now all of a sudden they're burning down houses and you're finding these burned out, you know, hulks of you know, buildings that are there. So here's an abandoned building. Here's one that's burned down. And it's just, you know, it became a very, very messy area. Um, you had these, uh, you know, these different legends that started to crop up. So, you know, the abandoned school bus, there was an abandoned school bus there. Uh, the story was that, uh, you know, a busload of children 
that were uh, were stopped by these serial killers, and then you know they killed all the children, and the bus was abandoned there. That's the legend. You had the uh, the satanic church with all the upside down crosses, and you know all this bizarre stuff. You know all the the witches. You know the the marker with the W meant that their witches were nearby. Uh, you had stories of chemical spills in secret government bases and aliens and all this stuff in this area, based on the way it looked. Well, the thing with the school bus, yes, it was an abandoned school bus, but what happened was that there was a family who was renovating their home, and I guess they were doing the whole thing in one shot. The father found this old school bus, drove it up onto the front lawn, and basically said, we're going to camp in the school bus while we're renovating the the home, and so they were living in there when this edict came down that they were going to be out of their house. So they left the school bus there. That's it. You know, they just happened to be living in the school bus at the time that this happened. And when they were booted off their property, they just left the school bus there. They have a reason to take it with them. You know, all these crazy stories and legends came about. So the satanic church with all the upside down crosses, well, there is a church there uh, in Peninsula. It, and it's still there, by the way. Um, but it's, it's a gingerbread style architecture is what they call it. So if you look at what's above the front door of the church, and then just below the steeple, uh, you could say that, sure, those kind of look like upside down crosses, but it's, it's just the type of architecture. It's a gingerbread style architecture. They're not, they're not satanic. Some of the other stories um like wild creatures and things like that so there's a uh, older gentleman who contacted me a couple years ago that had actually lived lived there at stanford house which that house is still there they use it as a hostel now it's like one of the few remaining buildings that are there still use it as a hostel he actually lived in that house for uh quite some years uh as a kid of course uh remained in the area after he grew up and so the wild animals, he's like, uh, the, the thing was, is that, okay, there was a chemical spill, which, you know, leaked out, government chemical spill, trying to cover it up, uh, leaked out onto some of the animals, and the animals mutated, and now you have, uh, you know, mutant animals running about. So really what it was is, um, train goes right by there, and they had a train accident with a, it was a circus train, and some of the animals did escape including things like some giant pythons. So giant pythons were roaming around in the woods there because they came off the circus train. Uh, the chemical spill sort of is true, but it wasn't some government uh, truck that was just you know dumping stuff there or had uh, had an accident and spilled out. So there was a guy who had a junkyard there and um, he'd, take on, you know, old cars and, you know, stuff like that. And kind of your basic auto salvage sort of thing. But he was also secretly taking these barrels of toxic waste as well. And he was burying them out there. And so when they were uh, instituting the eminent domain, there are some, uh, you know, nice photos of the signs, you know, keep out, U.S. government, et cetera that they used to cordon off this area. It's because they're cleaning up the waste. So this guy and his girlfriend went walking out there to see, okay, what's going on and saw that, okay, they're, they're cleaning up the barrels and everything. It, but the area that they're walking in was melting his shoes. So that part of it's kind of true. You know, again, little grains of, of truth within there. So, and I also have, and I just like to throw this one out. I also have a personal connection to the area. So when it comes to Jate, which is the old paper mill that was there, this is like one of those old company town areas. So the little yellow buildings there were actually company town buildings where the people that worked at the paper mill would actually live at. The Park Service now use it for, uses it for administrative buildings. Um, this was on my grandfather's side. And my grandfather is the little kid all the way in the, on the left-hand side. So you can still see, um, okay, the Fort Journey machine that's like right in front in the top right there that machine is actually still there you can go visit it it's like really the only part of the old paper mill that's still there unfortunately it's left out in the elements so it's pretty much a rusting hulk at this point 
So then the question becomes, at least for me, why did they boot all these people out of their home? Again, you can just, you know, cordon off, this is going to be our park over here. That's going to be our park over there. Um, institute some edicts that are, you can't expand any more, uh, you know, commercial buildings, no more industry. You, know, you got your homes, you got whatever's established, that's it, we're done uh, as far as expansion. But they booted people out. And I find that you can find things in plain sight. And what I discovered when I first walked through there were these different signs. One warns of a gas pipeline going through the area. The other warns of the transcontinental cable, which were not there when the, the houses were first there. These were placed in after the fact. So I'm looking at that like, oh, I see. Maybe, maybe it's they kick these people out of their home to run the cable and the pipeline through. Well, okay, then why not just institute that on the people? Like, hey, we're going to run this stuff through here. You don't have a choice. We're going to do that. Well, see, the people did kind of have a choice. It goes back into looking at the history of the area before all this stuff with the eminent domain and what became known as Helltown. So there's a highway in the area, uh, Interstate 271, and the way it currently runs is it does this arc around the area from like the north, uh, north side of the Canton area around, uh, so you can catch that and kind of go on to, to Youngstown. It would have been a lot cheaper to go straight through, right? Going straight through would have taken them right through this area. Boston, Peninsula, Jake. My, uh, my great-great-aunt, it was actually my grandfather's aunt, who, this is where the uh, family part of it comes into play, looking at the Jates. Uh, so uh, her sister was married to Charles Jate there. And uh, it was my Aunt Vicky. She was a teacher in the area. And uh, I guess she used to go on and on and on about how they were going to just build this massive highway right over the town. And that's essentially what their plan was, was to build the highway right over the town. The town's people fought and they won. And so instead of taking the highway straight right through their town, they won their case and they were diverted. They had to divert the highway to go around, which of course cost them extra money to do. Not only the legal fees, at which they ended up losing, but then also in the construction of the highway. So knowing that there's already a precedent that these are tough, resilient people, screw it, we're not even going to deal with that. We're just going to institute eminent domain, take the land, and we're going to build our stuff, stuff straight through without having to worry about the court battles. The people still went to Congress to complain, but it went absolutely nowhere because, boom, they instituted eminent domain. Done. It's not even a question anymore. So that's tearing into the history of the land. Um, I don't have a lot more time to really get into um, this particular story, which is using history for residential cases. Uh, but we do. You can use... Um, that goes into um, the case with the haunted that was on Animal Planet. Uh, you can find that in some of my other uh, work. But I do want to mention this particular one, using history as a trigger object on investigations. And I have mentioned this one to you guys before. It's a nice quick story. The other one's a little bit more entailed. Uh, so what I like to do with a lot of this historic research when we're on a paranormal investigation, I like to have as much information as possible going in. Uh, because I've been able to use that information as a trigger object to be able to uh, communicate better with the spirits that may be there. It's kind of like the idea of, you know, you're at a social gathering and, you know, you need to mingle a little bit. It's a lot easier to strike up a conversation with a person if you know a piece of information about them than rather just going in cold. Um, if you can say, oh, hey, you know, you know, hey, Bob, hey, Julie, you know, I heard that, you know, you really like water skiing or whatever it is. And then, oh, yeah, yeah, I do. Boom, you can start a conversation, you know. But if you don't know anything about them, like, hey, I'm Mike. Um, who are you? What do you do? Yeah, it makes it a little bit tougher. 
So um, it first struck me because a lot of people are like, you know, going in, not knowing a thing because they don't want to be quote unquote biased or whatever. Um, I sort of get that, but if, as long as you're disciplined about it, I don't think it's an issue. Um, you know, because I, I get that people will kind of pigeonhole them. Like if they hear, well, there's always this, you know, this particular guy that's seen in this one quarter. And so they end up there in that corner the whole time. Just discipline yourself. So if you're not getting anything in the corner, move on, do something else. So in any case, where this came into play, uh, when it first dawned on me, it's about 12 years ago, read a, uh, it's Frederick, Oklahoma, read a old army training school. They did uh, the flight jumping there, uh, parachutes and all that sort of thing. It's where is where they trained. They have a couple of airplanes within the hangar there. This one actually saw action during World War II. And we actually were allowed to go inside. And uh, I was really honored that they let us do that. So we're inside the airplane. And, you know, we're trying to do some EVP work. We got a bunch of devices set up. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Not at all. Well, all of a sudden, you know, we're like, we're not really getting anything here. Maybe we should move on. I'm like, hang on a second. So I mentioned, well, you know what? Hey, my name's Mike. And I spent six years in the United States Air Force, which I know came out of the old Army Air Corps, which you would have flown for. And then all of a sudden, boom, we get stuff lighting up. We start getting some EVPs. Oh, okay. So we start, you know, asking some questions geared. Now, we were already trying to find out who was in there, you know, what year or what his, um, you know, position would have been on the plane, all that sort of stuff. We re-asked those questions because now we're starting to get some action. Well, it turned out that because I was able to relate to him a little bit because I had mentioned, hey, I was in the Air Force. I know where the Air Force came out of. I know that was the old Army Air Corps, et cetera, et cetera, because I had information that he could relate to that directly to him that he opened up. So fine, I'll give you some information uh, about me. It turned out to be the old navigator that uh, was there on the plane during World War II. So, all right. So stories, yeah. Um, you know, we're still creating our stories today. Uh, it's a very, very important part of everything that we that we do. It is, I want to say this, you know, it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. You know, everyone loves a good story. And so, uh, as we continue on in this research, you know, it's it's not just about the hard data. Sure, we need to collect data. We need to analyze that. But it means something to us when we can turn that into some sort of story that's meaningful to us. So, all right. I know you guys have some comments down in here. Um, Connie's saying that sounded familiar. Yeah, that's, that, that's one I tell a uh, a bit about <laughs> I, I have told the story before uh so oh is there a movie or documentary so um i would recommend the documentary for the good of all this is about Helltown. it's an old pbs documentary from the early 1980s that's the true documentary there was one on on quote unquote Helltown that premiered on destination america which then ended up getting picked up by Travel Channel, uh, which is totally false. It's, I call it a mockumentary because it's purely entertainment. They used Canadian actors. They couldn't even pronounce the names of locations correctly. Uh, it was, it was just a, it was a total farce. It was purely for entertainment. Um, I'll tell you what, I got a lot of views on my YouTube channel because of it uh, on my, on my Helltown videos. But that thing was totally false, and they presented it like they were actually, you know, interviewing people and things like that uh, at the location. And it just, no, it, it was all completely fabricated. The one you want is for the good of all. Um, I forget the exact year, but it was early 1980s, and it premiered on PBS. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, just, just search for that. So... All right. That will do it, everybody. Again, we are going to be uh out for the next two weeks because we're going to be in ireland so the next connecting the universe class will be drum roll please july 13th so we'll be basically be recapping the ireland expedition with that particular class so all right everybody you have a good night for our uh 
Listeners later on the audio podcast version, please join us, connecteduniverseportal.com. Every Wednesday night, 8 o'clock p.m., except for the next two weeks while we're in Ireland. But stay tuned for the Ireland travel blog that will be posted to the portal website for subscribers. Everybody have a good night. Till next time.